Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic. Rather than making recommendations because everyone's circumstances are different, we talk to subject matter experts about how they would recommend thinking about that decision. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia, which is where we are recording today. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please also consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. Our topic today is, should I have software developed offshore? And for those of you who uh, either know me in real life or have followed the podcast, and, and if you have followed the podcast, um, thank you very much for doing that. Um, it's a small but growing club, I'm sure. Um, you know that I have a background working with emerging technology companies, even mature technology companies. And um, in working with, with such companies, there are a few universal truths that I hear about how somebody's going to grow and scale their company. One, they say, well, we're going to have viral marketing. Um, and that's a whole, that's a different animal that we'll tackle at some point. But if you know how to reliably produce viral marketing, you don't need to raise money. Somebody will pay you $10 million a year to do it. Um, but I digress. Um, you know, second is all I need is $3 million and this idea comes to fruition. And the third is we are going to develop software offshore. And we tend to think about this as, as if it's something that is just very easily done and very easily executed because we are used to technology now being imported from overseas, whether it's phones from Korea, whether it's Macintoshes or iPhones being made in Taiwan and China, um, <clears throat> whether it is Facebook memes coming from Volgograd. Um, the fact of the matter is we have a lot of technology that comes from abroad. And of course, everybody is familiar with uh, the meme of Steve from Wichita, who's actually based over in uh, Mumbai. And so we're used to having our technology come from someplace else. And so at a high level, it's easy to kind of think about, well, we'll just have our software developed abroad. These, you know, many of these countries have very strong educational systems and in particular are very strong at producing uh, engineers, scientists, mathematically oriented people. People are clearly very comfortable with computers. And by the way, you know, the, the story goes that un, they basically work for peanuts or whatever the Indian equivalent of a peanut is. Um, and, um, that's fine as far as it goes. But when you sort of dig into it, you know, I've discovered that for every success story about, well, we're just going to offshore and outsource our, our software development. Um, there are a few stories that are not as successful. In fact, some of them are just outright tire fires. And so it's, it's indicative, I think, of, of an important notion that software development abroad, really anywhere, but especially offshore, doesn't just happen just because you know that other companies have, have been able to do it. 
And so it's, it's a decision that needs to be worked through very carefully because for most companies, getting your software done correctly, getting it done on time, and now in a way that makes sure that you don't have security backdoors, um, it is not just a financial imperative. It is existential to the firm. And if you get that wrong, you just have no product and it's, not every firm can just sort of hit the reset button and say, okay, this didn't work. Let's, let's try it again a second or a third time. And so I think it's important to kind of understand what exactly is involved in that. And other than what I just told you, this is not a topic I know anything about. But fortunately, I have a guy here in front of me who does know a lot about that, and he's going to tell us about it and share that knowledge with us. So joining us today is uh, Dave Bernard. Dave is a serial entrepreneur, technologist, inventor, and investor living in Atlanta, Georgia. An expert in new and emerging technologies, Dave has co-founded several companies, including the Intellection Group, an innovative technology consulting group that has been recognized as one of Georgia's most innovative companies. The Intellection Group specializes in building complex award-winning software-as-a-service systems for both commercial and government entities in North America, Europe, and Africa. The Intellection Group specializes in rapidly building sophisticated, high-quality, and innovative technology solutions that deliver breakthrough business results. They like nothing better than for you to count on them to bring new and exciting ideas to the table that enable you to succeed in a tough and complex marketplace. Dave has led and helped create award-winning complex software programs for organizations across many different industries, including healthcare, supply chain, insurance, retail, hospitality, you get the idea, all shapes and sizes from startup to multi-billion dollar uh, enterprises. Um, Dave has also founded a company called Benevets, providing technology solutions to veteran services organizations. Boy, do we ever need that. Um, he's also led the Intellection Group's development of a patented technology architecture that unifies web development capabilities with voice recognition, text-to-speech, natural languages, radio frequency identification, and global positioning system technologies deliverable to wireless, handheld, and desktop services. And his credentials go on and on, but you get the idea. He's pretty smart. He's pretty accomplished. Dave, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mike. That's quite a quite an intro. I'm really glad to be here, though. I'm going to have fun with this. We are going to have fun with this, and, and and I know that we're going to learn a lot because, you know, do you, do you agree with me that I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of people just sort of take for granted that offshore software development happens, right? And that's not the case. They do. Um, and, there, you know, there's definitely what I would consider an almost mythology about it. And, you know, I, I tend to have a bit of a contrarian attitude about a lot of things. I've been in this business 40 years. I've seen a lot of best things since sliced bread come and go. And so I have a, uh, an increasing skepticism about what that next best thing is. When we first started our company, uh, our technology company about 16 years ago, um, you know, you're, you're a new company. You want to control costs and make some money coming out of the gate. And I already had a large network of offshore people that I'd met at conferences over the years. And I just kind of flipped through my Rolodex and started calling some of these people overseas. And we actually started establishing a nice little, uh, business doing that. And it has been, it has not been a bed of roses all along. We've learned a lot through the school of hard knocks. And I'll tell you one of the, one of the biggest revelations for me in building this up has been that I thought software development is software development, no matter where it's done. And that meaning that I didn't think that there were cultural 
differences that would make a difference. I have found that to be diametrically opposite in practice, that cultural differences may matter a lot to how work gets done. And you have to account for that. Good. So let, let's, let's put a pin in that. So we are going to get back to that. But, but speaking about kind of those cultural differences in your, in your mind and your experiences, you see it sitting here today. What are the countries right now that seem to attract the most interest in terms of being hosts of offshore development exercises? Yeah. It, I mean, everybody talks about South Asia, India, Pakistan, even Bangladesh. Uh, you have, um, the Far East emerging as a very low cost area, Vietnam, Philippines in particular. The Philippines is very attractive because there's a lot of English speakers there. Um, but they're also an entire half day ahead of you. So that needs to be, I, I actually use a virtual assistant out of the Philippines. Um, so I, I'm uh, acutely aware of that. And other areas that are up and coming, I think are Central America, South America, their, their values because they're tend to be in about the same time zone we're in. And you also have to pull in Canada as a nearshore uh, opportunity, but mostly Canada has been positioning themselves as QA, technical support type of uh, capability. So that's what you hear about. What we have found after going through the School of Howard Knox on this is that Eastern Europe for us is the biggest bang for the buck, best cultural fit, and just there's just a lot of stud developers over there. Now, uh, an important sort of nuance. When you say Eastern Europe, do you mean sort of all of the countries east of Germany or do you parse kind of Central Europe that has Poland, Czech Republic versus Belarus, Ukraine, Russia? Does that make a difference? It's a, I would say Central and Eastern Europe. Though. Okay. Um, we've been, we have a ton of experience with Bulgaria, for example. Um, and I would like to highlight them because there's a historical reason why they're that way, but also, a substantial experience in Poland and Belarus. And I've, I know people who work with Serbs, Croats, uh, Romanians and Hungarians and Czechs. And they're all very, very good. It's a very similar type of approach. You know, what's interesting about Bulgaria. Um, they produce a ton of academic finance people and economists for some reason, more than any other country, when, when, you know, in my field where, where somebody writes a really new and interesting paper that is super quantitative, like, you know, it takes me an hour and a half to get through the first page, basically. Bulgaria seems to produce a lot of people like that. And that, I think that goes to the culture, right? For whatever reason, their culture, maybe their education system seems to skew towards that way. Yeah. There's a, there's a very interesting wrinkle in Bulgaria that I did not discover till after I was working there for a few years. And that is that. If you recall the command economy that the Soviet Union ran in the Warsaw Pact, you had uh, countries like Poland that were uh, building aircraft. So the Soviets would outsource a lot of their aircraft manufacture to Poland in order for the economy to succeed. So the Czechs and Hungarians built cars. The Bulgarians built computers. That's what they did. They built software, That's right. firmware, and computers. They're very well known for that. So when you do that, your whole – education ecosystem is built around that so that is still there that disproportionate focus on uh, on the hardware and software side of things is tremendous there and i think that part of that has informed you know a disproportionate amount of their population is in that business and we just found tremendously 
uh, talented people there. That that's really interesting. I, and somewhere in the back of my mind, I was aware of that, but never made that connection until you made it for me. That explains. And I'll I'll, I'll pull the, the 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 kimono back for just a second. One of my hobbies is retro computers. Like one of my prized possessions is an Apple II GS. It actually works, <laughs> souped up, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the one thing that I do not have in my collection, and I will not because that'll be a major fight with my wife that I'm not going to have, uh, is a Provets computer, which was their knockoff of the Apple II. Yeah. That their spies basically went into Cupertino, stole the diagram, stole the stole everything basically, and remade it. And if you look, you can find them on eBay once in a while, and it looks almost exactly like an Apple IIe, except Apple has been replaced with, with the Provets Well, next time logo. I'll go, I'll see if I dig one up for you. Oh, boy. You do that. You're my friend forever. But, you know, <laughs> there's one other really interesting thing about this, and something the Bulgarians are immensely proud of, and that is the, the person who invented the digital computer is, been de- is widely regarded as a fellow named John Atnasov out of, I believe, his Iowa State University. Well, at he, his name is spelled Atnasov with two Fs at the end. But I didn't never made the connection because I know a lot of Atnasovs yeah. in Bulgaria. And sure enough, he's Bulgarian. Is that right? And in fact, when I when I made that connection, I asked when I was in Sofia one time, I asked my team, "Do you know about this?" "Oh yeah, he's one of our greatest heroes." And they took me to a large statue in the middle of Sofia that has his figure on it and uh i also had a little another little anecdote is that i was actually at a um a soccer game with my daughter probably about 12 years ago and standing next to an old friend of mine who also had a daughter in the team and i had mentioned so i must have been talking about going to bulgaria and she said oh my family is bulgarian oh really no kidding and she said oh no by the way my grandfather invented the digital computer <laughs> and i was like john atnasov yeah that was him. And actually, a few years later, on his 100th birthday anniversary, they came over, found her, and brought her whole family over for 10 days, ran them around the country, and just celebrating his 100th anniversary. It was a big deal there. Big deal. Well, good. So, um, And by the way, if you're listening from the Bulgarian embassy near the commercial attache, feel free to call up and sponsor our program. Um, but I'm, th- that's fascinating. I did not know that. Um, but, you know, getting back to the, getting back to the, you know, the, the core part of the question is that not all offshore hosts are the same, right? And it's not just Definitely. about cost structure, but cultural. So I'm curious, you said that Central and Eastern Europe for, at least for you, seem to have worked the best, maybe yes. for your clients. Why is that? Yeah, there's some very definite patterns there. Um, when you're in a small business like me, you know, I can't afford to micromanage people. I need to have smart people, knowledge workers, you can call them, that can run on their own, take initiative, and go solve problems and think for themselves. Otherwise, it doesn't scale. just doesn't scale. So with, with a lot of countries, there is actually a great cultural barrier to saying no to the boss, you know, or disagreeing with the boss at all. So you, they'll, they'll just say yes to you all day long. And uh, then you're just you're, you're paying them all day long uh, with the Bulgarians and with many others in that part of the world. I found a, a pretty common theme is that they definitely will push back. I mean, it's a, it's great to have those kind of, you know, they're not tense conversations, but they, you know, it's, it's, it's sharpening the steel. 
Uh, and we've had many times, many times when I've said for them to do something and they said, Dave, that's a really bad idea. And this is why. And I said, Oh, you're right. Thank you for telling me. And I love that aspect of it with them. And, and you know, I, I've found something similar. As you know, I spent a lot of time in Belarus and Ukraine myself and they are not shy. I mean, they've, they aren't. And, and for whatever reason, maybe it's because for 70 years they couldn't say no. Now they can't say no fast <laughs> enough, right? And and you're right. That is a good thing. You'd much rather have that than the passive aggressive, hey, we'll take your money, right? Yes. Uh, but but then you don't wind up with what you want. I'd much rather be told that I'm not doing the right thing up front. And they do appreciate that directness too. It's part of their culture. So if I'm direct with them, they're direct with me, we all get along great and yep. we get a lot done. You know, so that's what that's really the big difference for me. Interesting. Okay, so um, uh, the obvious driver to move development offshore is cost, at least perceived cost. Anyway, mm-hmm. are there other things you might want to consider? Is there a reason besides cost to consider offshore development? Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I hope I don't uh, upset too much of the audience, but you know, I've been just underwhelmed by the bang for the buck I get from onshore developers. Uh, there's several problems with onshore developers, and I just have chosen not to deal with them. One, I think, is they're grossly overpaid uh, for what they do. And I've seen that firsthand with working with developers all over the world. The other thing is, I think that even more important, and all these things are kind of tied together, cost is an issue, culture is an issue, work ethic and attitude is an issue. But also, there's this, there's this kind of pattern in the U.S. where you job hop. You don't like your job, you can make 10 bucks an hour more over there or another 20 grand a year over there. You job hop. That just doesn't happen in my world in Central and Eastern Europe. We have multiple examples where we've had the same small group of developers working on a project for 10, 12, 13 years. And when you have that kind of continuity on a project, all kinds of things happen that you don't have to worry about. They tend to be a lot better at their work because they've been working on the system. They make yep. a lot fewer mistakes. That makes QA and testing a whole different ballgame. Responsiveness goes way through the roof. And I don't have to, I don't have to have all these processes and plans for when they leave. So we actually don't even think about that because there's so much continuity now. We don't worry about it, you know, and that's, that is so ingrained in the U.S. approach. If you really looked at all the processes and procedures that they put into U.S.-based software development, the vast majority of it is geared toward that guy walking out the door and screwing us. You know, and, and it's you know, it's interesting. You bring up two things that I, I want to kind of highlight. You know, one is that yeah, the, the cost here is higher, but it doesn't sound like that in on a, in of itself is problematic. But it's the value that you get for the cost, yeah. right? You could live with the high cost. If the value are there, but yes. the value is not there. And, and I would you know, say too that, you know, we don't pay the lowest rates yeah, that are out there. Right. And there is a, there is a lot of academic work done on product programmer productivity. If you look at DeMarco and Lister and Ed Jordan and some of the, and uh, Steve McConnell, you'll see a lot of academic work. And the, the end of it is, is that there's a wide range of talent in developer community. The difference between a mediocre developer and a top-notch stud, it can be 7, 8, 9, 10x. So what we want to do is we want to find the 7 or 8x guy that we can pay 2x for. That's a tremendous bargain. So 
a lot of times the 10 and $15 an hour people take four times as long to do something. And I could pay somebody 20 or $25 an hour and they do the work of five people. So there's a, there's a whole different mindset there. It's economics. It's math. Yep. You know, that's what it boils down to. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll take a little bit of the finance geek, you know, side tour. As, as you know, one of the things I do a fair amount of is, is appraising software, right? Internally developed software. And two of the factors that we consider that plug directly into the quantitative models we use are how effective are the programmers and what is the turnover. And it's, it's fascinating because you, you, you would think not knowing, and I didn't know this, not knowing the intricacies of that software development process, the knee jerk is re- reaction would be, Oh, turnover has got to be lower here, especially if they're kind of in house people, right? I can pay them. I can keep them. But that's so not true. It sounds mm-hmm. like that. In fact, these offshore teams, for whatever reason, may, and maybe that's cultural, right? Tend to stick around for, you know, prolonged periods of time. They're actually more stable than even if you hired people in house. They are. And there's, I think there is some insight that I can add to that. I think software developers in general, having been one for 40 years myself, I think in general, they're a lot like doctors. They're trained to practice a craft and that's what they want to do. They don't want to run a business. They don't want to have to deal with insurance companies. They don't want to have to market themselves. The software developers are not that much different. If you can create an environment for them where all they got to do is code and build stuff and be creative, they're very happy. So really, our job in the intellection group is to find customers and give them work. And when we do that, we make them very happy. And they're not going to go anywhere because they'd be shooting themselves in the foot. I think the other thing we do because of distance, it's also very hard to, it's harder to build relationships with people. Even if you've got Skype and email and all that, we communicate with our guys constantly. But we also visit them on a regular basis, at least once a year. And we know their kids. We know we visit their houses. We know their, their spouses. So it's, it's a relationship that's built on that personal side as well as the commercial side. So you talked about the fact that you've found some folks that work really well and you've had long-term relationships. Let's put ourselves in the seat of somebody now who's thinking, oh, man, I, you know, I should think about offshoring. How, how do you go about making an assessment as to whether or not they're going to be a good fit? I mean, it, it can't be as simple as finding resumes on Indeed.com or something, you know, and you've got the cultural, geographic distance center. How, how do you do that? You know, I mean – Getting introduced to them is probably the hardest part because there's a lot of them out there to sift through. Um, what I try to do is, and I rarely add new teams, although I did add some new teams in the last couple of years in, um, in Krakow and Minsk. And I actually went to visit them, uh, before I engaged with them to see their offices, to see how they run their shops, you know, uh, and look them in the eye. I mean, I, that's worth the investment because I'm about to bet my company on these guys. The other thing we'll do is to test them on some small projects that we don't pay for. Okay. I learned that a long time ago. Find a 20 or 40 hour project that they'll do. And they'll almost all of them will say, yeah, sure. We'll be happy to do that. And what you really want to test there is not necessarily their coding ability, but I want to, I want to see how well and how they communicate and how responsive they are. Because in our business, that's everything. Our clients want us to be responsive and communicate 
frequently. They don't want unknowns. And that's the same way I want to run my business. So that's really what I'm looking for. If I see a lag in that, that's a big red flag for me. And that's got to be another differ- differentiator between an offshore market here. I mean, you try to get somebody local to take on a, a project of that scope to test out their capabilities, right? They're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> At best, they will not do- refuse with extreme prejudice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and uh, that's part of that whole attitude thing. Yeah. You know, I actually think there's a, a tremendous desire to work with Americans in overseas markets. So I there's think a so cachet too. to that. That's leverage for you. Um, and if you treat them as equals, you know, the thing I used to hear all the time from some teams, I mean, every time I'd visit them, they tell me this, you know, we do work with some other U.S. companies, but they don't let us do cool stuff. You guys let us do stuff that people actually use. So there's a, they also feel distrusted and disrespected hmm. in a lot of ways because, oh, well, the Americans know best, but that's not the case. And what we try to do actually, because it's good for business is to push everything down to the lowest level. We want them to do architecture. We want them to do database design. We want them to do documentation so that they own the whole thing. And then they learn the business. So again, that scales. If I got to tell them every little thing to do, that doesn't scale. So Mike, I got guys who know, I got guys in Sofia who know more about global private equity than most people in New York. You know, I've got, I've got people in Minsk who know more about, um, sales, uh, online sales and marketing than most people in California do. And that's because they've had to bury themselves in it, in the details and build it and they own it. So I don't have to tell them technical specs. I just say the customer wants a report that shows this, this, and this four or five sentences, they go build it. They know what to do. So that, that brings up a, another question I'll get to later, but the segue works here. It sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're an advocate of sending entire projects, not necessarily having the offshore developer work on a piece or a part of it and maybe keep it here. Sounds like you think just either you're going to give them the project or you're not. Is that fair? That is, that is fair. I mean, the structure we have is we have onshore managers here, but really the, the delineation is in customer ownership. Who owns the relationship? We own the relationship, the intellectual group with our customers. The developers rarely talk directly to our customers. We want to be that intermediary because we want to own the relationship. And the, actually, quite frankly, the developers are very happy with that. They don't want to talk to customers. I'm sure. <laughs> they want to do their thing. So that works out very, very well. Um, so we, that model is, is really important, I think. And that's actually, I would say it's our biggest problem is finding good onshore management. Hmm. That is a still an Achilles heel for us because again, you know, we're dealing with people who are trying to run by an agile playbook or something like that. Uh, and they think if I just put all these processes in place, everything's going to work. No, you've got to get engaged. You've got to talk to these people every day. You can't just email them. You got to get on Skype, look them in the eye. You got to be able to be flexible and move priorities around. That's these guys are good at that. Make use of it. You know, and I, I, I still have a difficulty finding people who will do that. And, and I think that's an important point because it's different to manage an offshore team. It is right. Even, even if you've had 15 years of experience at pick a company, Cox communications, right? Managing their internal software development processes. 
it it's just a different skill set, a different animal managing an offshore team, isn't it? It is. And we have our I have my own personal philosophy with with the hundreds of projects I've been involved in in my career. Like Agile's not fast enough. Two week scrums to me are awful. We drop code every day with our clients. You know, when you do that, you don't have to give them a status report because the system is the status. It's always built. It's always running. And it's always up to date. You want to see where we are? Go look at the system. That's where we are. And if you do that every day, mind share is preserved. Okay. So that's what we would hate for a developer to make a change wait for two weeks to deploy it. So the customer tests it. He's already forgotten after the third day what he did. The customer comes back and said, oh, there's something wrong with it. I don't know what what I did back then. That's how things really work. We would rather have that very tight velocity and much, much, it's much better use of mind share for us. And that, that has worked for me in lots of projects. So we call it, for want of a better term, we call it super agile. And uh, we've gotten that confirmed with some independent third parties who've looked over our process and our code. And they, they, I was actually told by a, um, a European firm that just did a, a large code review, a multi-million line system we've been building for 10 or 12 years. And uh, they told us they'd never seen a more productive team. And I said, it's really simple. We just, we deploy a lot. And we still do 500 hours of work on that system every month. Every single month, it's never going to end. And so, and they couldn't, they've never seen anybody with our velocity. But that to me is the only way to build this to preserve Mindshare. It's a knowledge worker business. It's, you know, even in my field, it's very hard to put, to start, put down, pick up, down, yeah. pick up, right? It's, it, <clears throat> the, the, the creativity gets lost, you know, the time getting up to speed. And so forth, and you um, know it intuitively, you know. You, you do. I mean, I, I, you know, I had not in, in software, but I, I was set to be an expert witness in in a case that I last touched about four years ago, and I had assumed the thing had settled, and then all of a sudden, you know, the, the attorney emails and and, and says, um, "Hey, this thing looks like it's going to trial." I'm like, let me see if I can find it. Right? <laughs> I obviously can find it, but. You know, you're trying to kind of get back and, and step back for you know thankfully it, it, it settled so nobody wanted to be in that case but but the, the notion of having something that's sort of stale like that and then try to pick it up and try to do the the, the same quality of work that you were doing when you started boy that's the exception to rather than the rule isn't it it is and you know I would in this discussion is about offshore development but a lot of the things I'm talking about apply to software development in general and the point I want to make is that the reason we do offshore development is it actually makes some of the other stuff clearer and easier and more predictable to do um, in a lot of ways. So that's it's big advantage. So talking about um, talking about kind of where you're going to get this done, and you of all people appreciate this because I know that this is something that you are very involved in studying, is the the nature of security, right? There are countries out there that, that wish the United States ill. And candidly, they realize they cannot defeat us on a conventional battlefield. And so their battlefield is cyberspace. Um, and there's concern and we've seen it even with the current administration that, you know, we're not necessarily letting other companies sort of have the run of the place from technology anymore. And I'm curious uh, on a, 
even if it's not a particularly quote sensitive project, is that something you think about? If you think about, you know, a Russia, if you think about a China being a software developer for us, that maybe they're not enemies, but I'm not sure I say they're friends either, mm-hmm. right? Is that something if you're in the private sector should give you pause? You know, um, I would say that we let economics drive us and talent. Talent and economics drive us where we're going to go. So I have nothing against working with Russians or Chinese. There, there may be some other things that give me pause. So I do pay attention to things like economic sanctions, and that's a business risk. It's a business risk if, you know, I was actually working in, in Bulgaria before the VAT was implemented there. Hmm. And I had some concern about whether they were going to apply it to services. It turns out they didn't because that would have changed our business model. It's a 20% tax. So it's things like that more that are going to drive me. I, from an, if you're talking about intellectual property, um, I've, I get that asked of me a lot. People will say, well, what if they go and steal our code? And my, my response to that is a question, what are they going to do with it? I mean, they don't, by definition, they don't like marketing or selling. So they've got to have, they would have to package it up and figure out where the market is and go sell it and build a business around it. They don't have time for that and they don't want to do it. And plus they'd be, as soon as I found out about it and I would, I'd kill, I, you know, I'd cut them off. So right. that's a, that's a disincentive. So I think right now, can you completely bottle that up and make sure it doesn't happen? No, you can't. And even if you have NDAs and contracts, they're worth your ability to defend them, <laughs> which you want right. to do. Right. It's which like is, a patent, right? Which is tough. <laughs> so, uh, if you're not willing to defend it, why well, go do it? Um, but, in our case, we are we focus on making the relationship very strong and making it a really symbiotic relationship. That tends to keep those things at bay, and I've never had a problem with that. As far as national security types of aspects of this, well, that has its own rules, and we have done cleared projects overseas uh, under U.S. Army contract or NATO, and and I do some pro bono work in the national security space anyway, so I have a, maybe an extra sensitivity to working with some of those places. And for me, there's just so much work and so many good people that I can work with. Why risk working with people who are on the fringe? And I, I might consider right now in the current political climate and economic climate that Russia and China are kind of on the fringe. Okay. So, um, uh, switching switching gears a little bit, I'm curious. In your experience, are there certain kinds of software applications that are better or worse suited to being developed offshore? You know, I, I was given that some thought because I had your question ahead of time, and I just couldn't think of any pattern one way or the other. Okay. The 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 thing that I could think of the most was if you had a an application that was such high availability that you needed to have 24-7 engineering support on it. And that time zones might cause you a problem with that. But other than that, we've already built systems used in tens of countries at a time, 24-7 uh, around the world, and they were all built by the offshore guys. And, you know, a lot of our customers in the beginning, they'll say, well, you know, they're not available after like 1 p.m. Eastern or something like that. And they actually fall into our pattern of following the sun. They love sending me stuff at 11 p.m. And when they get up in the morning, it's done. So actually, they've all adapted to our pace and our time zone, and they actually understand it. 
you're going to have a gap somewhere. Everybody sleeps, right? So all they do is they understand, hey, I can get stuff to Dave late, and it's going to be done while I'm sleeping. It's interesting you say that. And, and sometimes I wonder if they sleep because for a, a <laughs> while I, I've actually used uh, an Indian contractor for my valuation practice. And, you know, it, it just astounded me. I would send something at nine at night. That's when I get a b- bunch of my sort of technical work done. And I'm getting a response at, in 30 minutes. I'm like, dude, you should, what, you should be asleep. I've had that same experience. I tell them the same thing. Go to bed. <laughs> um, uh, you know, you're no use to me if you're doing, you know, if you're, but, but you're right. They seem to adapt. They seem to be willing and enthusiastic to adapt their body clocks to match our time zone. And, and your customers adapt too. Yeah. I mean, it's all, it's all kind of the same thing you got to do with them anyway. Set expectations. This is the way it works. And it's very effective, um, for them. So, uh, I'm going to show off a word here that our, our mutual friend, Scott Burkett, who is on podcast number two or three, I think. Oh, I know Scott. Shared with me. And, and that was technical debt. Mm-hmm. I did not know what that was until about six months ago. Um, anyway, um, it is and, and for those of you who don't know, as I did not six months ago, technical debt is basically the amount of the amount of rework you may have to do with a software package to get it done so that it can actually can be expanded upon, as opposed to just getting it done in a rigid way to meet a deadline. <laughs> yes, more or less, right? Also, sort of That's covering a good definition. Obs- also covering obsolescence to a certain extent. Is there a greater risk or a lesser risk of of accumulating technical debt when an offshore project? The short answer is no, I don't think so. Okay. I mean, developers, you know, um, a good developer knows the best way to implement any given task. Now, given that, I'll just get on my soapbox a little bit about technical debt. And I have a really good example, a counterexample for this. It's actually a little bit of a surprise when I heard it. Like I said earlier, we had had a large system reviewed by Europe. It took months for them to do the review. Very thorough job they looked at every bit of our code and they came out and said you know you have a bunch of technical debt in your reports and this is a system been around for a while we probably built two or three hundred reports we would even retired like 20 of them and they said you have a tremendous amount of code duplication among these reports and i said really i and because i don't tell the developers how to write stuff that's their job and i talked to developers and they had a a very interesting story to tell me. They had followed my directive exactly. And my directive to them was this customer is extremely sensitive to accuracy and risk in the code. They just don't want bugs. So they took that to heart. And basically the approach they took is whenever a new report request came, they went and found another report that was battle tested, coded, and worked, copied the code, and worked from that, the one that was closest to what they had to build. So immediately they were reducing the risk tremendously, increasing the likelihood of accuracy and reducing the amount of work they had to do. So responsiveness went through the roof. Accuracy was still really good and risk was low, exactly what the customer wanted. And they've been doing that for years. Okay. And so, but these guys who were reviewing said, Oh, this, this has got to be fixed. I said, really? Okay. So what's my pitch to the customer here? I got to go burn a whole bunch of time that you're going to pay for. And I'm going to refactor this code. So now I've just instituted a whole lot of risk because I got cust- I got developers changing code. That's risk. And then at the end of the day, it's all got to be tested again, which is the bulk of work in software development. 
And so at the end, and after all that's done, then the customer's got to verify it, which they've already done with the re- existing reports. And after all that's done, they have the same thing they started with. So how do I pitch that to them? And they said, oh, I see your point. Because they were going to make it a prominent part of their presentation to the client. I said, you can do whatever you want, but I know what they're going to say. And so actually it's turned into, it was eye-opening for me because I loved, it was the genius creativity in my mind. Because the customer doesn't care how it's written. They just want it to work and make their business grow. And this is a customer who has realized billions of dollars of return on this, on this system. So that's, that's why <clears throat> there's a lot of these little things, object oriented programming, uh, agile development, technical debt, um, QA processes, you know, test driven development. All this stuff is really, to me, they're red herrings. They're distractions from serving the customer in the way that best does that. So I have a similar contrarian attitude about testing as well, based on experience. So, our, you know, and I did tell the customer a little bit about this. He said, you may hear about it. I'm just telling you, just say no. You know, it doesn't matter. So that's my, my little soapbox on that. All right. <laughs> um, so let um, – And oh, by the way, I would challenge anyone in the audience to – counterpoint that i would love to hear it okay well please do also because the more you challenge something and 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 write about the podcast the better our seo gets so <laughs> light it up everybody um it, it's open season for trolls on offshore software development there you go um so let me ask this i mean you've mentioned several countries in which you work i'm curious if you've ever had different teams in different countries working on the same project or do you kind of allocate kind of one project per team yeah as a general rule um it's it's one team per project uh i think it's you know it was a book 50 more years ago by fred brooks the guy who invented the uh the 360 operating system for ibm called the mythical man month uh and it's still in print it's a fabulous book every software developer should read it basically one of his famous quotes in there adding people to a late project makes it later but his big thing was that lines of communication expand exponentially as you add people. So the Google approach is to keep teams very small because the lines of communication are very, are fewer. If you have three people, then you have, you know, I guess it's a factorial, three factorial lines of communication. Hmm. Um, and if you add a fourth one, it goes up a lot. So if I have to have multiple teams working in different parts of the system at the same time, I have to not only contend with communication, but I also have to contend with different styles and approaches. I have to contend with different velocities because there's different talent in different places. It's a nightmare, quite frankly. It's really, I think, is uncontrollable. I think there are certain – there could be situations where the system can be built in very parallel pieces – uh, where you could probably get away with that, but I prefer actually for the mind share to be in one place and not in multiple places. It's just, that's just something I've not, I've found to work much better. Okay. And there's an ownership issue too. You know, these developers want to own their work. They, they want to have, it's their baby. You know, it, it's a creative process. It's not engineering. It's a craft. So if you've split the craft up between two groups, who owns it? 
You know, they'll put, you get into finger pointing exercises. It becomes a blame game. Yeah. Something goes wrong. Yeah. Okay. So you're obviously a big fan of offshore development. So let, let me ask you a contrarian question. Are there cases where you have advised clients that offshore development may be not, may not be a great idea? I think if, um, there, for, a, there are clients out there or people I've talked to who, just can't wrap their head around it. They don't, it's a, it's a trust issue when you boil it down. They just don't trust what they can't see. They want the person in their office. You know, you just can't get around that. And I would tell them, then you, then we're not a good fit for you yeah. because we don't work that way. You know, we can't give you the economies and the performance and velocity of development in that environment. Uh, because we're committing to something when we quote a system and we're committing to it based on how we do it. You know, if you want to change that, then you got to get a different group of people. So I think that's probably the only real time I tell them it's not going to work for you. Okay. Other than that, because we tend to deliver very quickly on stuff, it's almost like they're there. You know, it just starts showing. And then they forget that the the person's not there because they're seeing results. A lot of it is that trust because I don't see what's happening. I don't see a guy typing at a keyboard and coming in at eight and leaving at five. But if you see in results then it doesn't matter. They quickly get over that. That's what I would say to it. Okay. Well, Dave, we, we could easily go another hour on this, um, but we're, we're running out of time. So I think what I'd like to do is um, invite people if they want to learn more about this, if they're thinking about this for their own companies, how can they contact you to maybe ask a question or two and follow up? Uh, you know, my, my email address is, I'm always available, dbernard at intellectualgroup.com. You can easily find me on LinkedIn. Uh, and I, I get a lot of people, uh, communicating with me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to do that. So, uh, I'm not going to give out my phone number over, to, over the uh, podcast, but I can be called too. If once, okay. you, once you email me, then you, I'll allow you to call me. Yeah, you're not hard to, I mean, <laughs> phones are so tw- 20th century anyway. My phone number is probably on several websites out there anyway. Probably is. <laughs> if you do a search, you'll find me. Probably is. <laughs> Well, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Dave Bernard so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week, so please tune in so that when you're faced with with making your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. Thank you.